Hello and welcome to another episode of The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard, I'm a mastering engineer and I run the production advice website aimed to help you get the most out of recording, mixing and mastering your music. And joining me as always is my co-host John Tidy from reaperblog.net. John, we're both running on fumes, right? We are. Yeah. (laughs) Busy week. Yeah, you guys are going to have to bear with us um, and excuse us if we kind of fall asleep in the middle of this, perhaps. The topic this week is remastering and, as part of that, restoration. Um, But it's quite a big topic, so if the time ends on stretching out, then we will save restoration for next week and do that as a separate topic. But they're kind of interlinked, so it may not be possible to separate them. In terms of remastering, we're going to talk about what it is, we're going to talk about what's involved in the process of remastering and kind of how far that process should go. And then we're going to talk about whether you should do it at all and how much you should do if you're remastering, because there's a certain amount of controversy uh, in some areas about that topic. John, do you have in your mind an idea of what, I mean, you were just telling me that you've done kind of one project that you would consider to be remastering. What was that? Yeah. So this project that I did a couple of years back was it was a uh, Canadian country artist. Um, he's probably been recording for 40 or 50 years. And he had a, a few CDs that he had released, but they were pretty rough recordings, really. So he wanted them kind of updated and put out an, a new release with you know remastered stuff. So I think we ended up with 10 or 12 songs that were from three different releases uh, put onto a new CD. I did stuff like noise reduction de-hissing stuff and de-crackling and uh, kind of rebalancing and making sure that stuff was kind of up to a more modern standard, but not going too extreme because I don't really do that. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly, I mean, I think that's probably a textbook definition of remastering. Most stuff that's been commercially released these days has been mastered one way or another, either originally for vinyl or, you know, just in the original release. Sometimes you get stuff if there's bonus tracks or, you know, kind of archive material that's actually never been mastered before and you might still... So effectively you're just mastering it because remastering is doing some new mastering on it that was different than the previous time that it was mastered in an attempt to get a better result, basically. Yeah, and it it would be on music that has already been commercially released, right? Yeah, typically. I mean, so the interesting thing is I can say my... I mean, I've done a ton of remastering over the years. My first experiences of it were actually remastering existing CDs for reissue from the CDs, which, I mean, we'll talk in a minute about how, what the ideal way to do remastering, well, the ideal way to do remastering is to go back to the original source to get the original master tapes and do a fresh transfer at the best possible quality. But, and, and, and the idea of not doing that, of kind of mastering from an existing CD is something that, lots of people immediately start getting their hackles up over, you know, they're kind of like, well, that's not... The truth is there were still benefits to that process because back in the early days of CD, I mean, there were kind of two factors to this. One is that CD started off at least with this idea of perfect sound forever. Um, And anybody who takes issue with that can check out some of the earlier episodes of this podcast to um, get some opinions on that issue. And, and the thinking then was, well, all we have to do with this new amazing format, because remember, CD was the highest quality and possibly is still the highest quality widespread domestic format ever. 
the idea was just that you could copy the original tapes directly to the CD and that that was going to give the ideal sound to the listener. Um, but that kind of ignored some complications that I will go to into in a minute. Um, the The fact of the matter is that those original CDs and, and the original tapes that they were copied from quite possibly were not optimal in terms of listening. Um, either in terms of the converter technology that was used to make them or processing that might have been done for the vinyl release that wasn't done for the CD release that would make a difference in sound. So the, the, the short version is very often those original CDs didn't sound great and would really benefit from a little bit of EQ, a little bit of rebalancing, like you say, maybe some, some cleaning up, a little bit of restoration of this and that. So even though they came from CD and were going back to CD, the remastered versions sounded even better. So it was still a valuable process. And then there's also loudness. Well, and then there's also loudness. Uh, we'll get to loudness in a little while. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The The overall process is to just uh, think through the mastering process again and try and get an even better result by kind of any means necessary. Um, and I, so I think maybe we should go into this whole business about the source in more detail. The... Uh, so in your case, you were working from original CD releases, and in a lot of the early projects I did, I was working from original CD releases. But ideally, you would go back to the original tapes. What you have to be careful about is is what's actually on those tapes, um, because you know you could have the original mix tapes, literally the tapes that the the original mix down was done to, possibly including studio chat and all kinds of other stuff. You could have a sequenced production master uh, where somebody has taken all of those mixes edited them into the running order of the album with the gaps and then typically in that case you would have notes on the box from the tape saying you know uh lift this track by 2 dbs add 3 dbs of bass or whatever it was at the time of the original vinyl cut probably and that's actually there's an interesting little kind of tangent there which is to say that something that some people don't know about the way that vinyl used to be mastered is that in a situation like that, you had to obviously run the entire sequence to the cutting head in one continuous sequence. These days, you can have everything pre-prepared on a computer and line it all up. But if you're working from an analog source, you might have your settings optimized for the track you're working on, but they could be completely different settings for the next track. So what you actually have is two signal paths to the lathe. And while one of them is playing and recording down uh, to the cutting head, you're setting up the parallel processing path to with the settings for the next song and then you get to the gap and you transition from one to the other um, and then while that one's playing you go to the next song and so on all the way through um, so there's a real kind of art involved to that way of cutting vinyl that um, you know obviously people still do it that way people still record director vinyl without any computers you know a completely 100% analog signal path but it's kind of the exception Hipsters. rather than the rule these days I think <laughs> Well, <laughs> yes, hipsters and other people. Um, no, I think um, Butch Vig did a reissue of a Nirvana CD recently, a remaster that was mastered entirely analog from the original tapes in that way. I think I'm right in saying that. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but so people do still do that. And, you know, again, whether the, the benefits for that are worth the pain um, could be debatable. I mean, hasn't hasn't that album made enough millions yet? I mean, come on. How many releases of that <laughs> well, have there been? 
Well, no, it's not. It wasn't. Never mind. Um, I'm trying to remember which one it was. Um, well, there's only like four of them. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Okay. So the Nirvana catalog in general has made um, made enough money. I, I would agree with that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just so being the next possibility. If it was, I mean, if it was my biggest project, I would probably want to release it. You know, every year. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, a lot you, of, John, cynical? Nah. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. Um, so that that's another possibility for what what a master tape could be. Then you could have what's called an EQ'd production master, which was pretty common uh, with the projects that I was working on, where somebody had already done that work. You had you know kind of the the equivalent of the modern sequenced computer master. So it's a, it's a a continuous run of tape with all of the mastering optimization done, ready to be played out to vinyl, to the cutting lathe. But it's important, I think, at that point to mention that these masters were intended for vinyl. And vinyl has limitations, for example, on the very low and very high frequencies that can be reproduced. So just because something because you might think that that master, an EQ production master, would be the ideal thing to work from, right? It's it's the the final stage before it went down onto vinyl and to to be released but uh you know people would pre-eq things in order to compensate for the change in sound that happened when the vinyl cut went ahead um and as i say there were limitations in the vinyl sound that meant that you maybe wouldn't put the full frequency bandwidth down um everything went through riaa filtering on the way down to the vinyl and then it kind of kind of gets decoded if you like coming back again in playback so there's nothing that says that what would be the optimal sound for a vinyl cut is going to be the optimal sound for a cd release um so even an eq production master is not necessarily going to be the perfect source just like you know a final mix down you might say would be the ideal source for mastering i mean it is for mastering but it doesn't tell you what the final release sounded like because they could have made big changes at the cut so there's a whole load of variables. Then you could have tapes that were any number of generations of copy of any one of those things that came before. You could have copies of the mixes. You could have copies of uh, an edited production sequence. You could have copies of an EQ'd production master. And they could be high quality, low quality, whatever. You know, there's so many variables. And then another kind of source that you might get would actually be a piece of vinyl. Um Lots of people are surprised to learn that quite a bit of vintage material is re-released on CD, having been sourced from a piece of vinyl, the original release. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense for really old stuff that was on, you know, 78s and things, um, or gramophone records. But uh, even stuff from the 60s and 70s, sometimes there are no original master tapes. So you, you take a piece of vinyl and clean it up as best you can for CD release. In fact, there's one CD... Can't remember the name of the album. It was by the author, Michael Moorcock, who wrote pulp fantasy novels. And he was in a band that was basically part of uh, Hawkwind, bits of Hawkwind plus him, called The Deep Fix. And it was called The World's End Fair or something very like it. I had to do a remaster of this for reissue. Uh, and I had a copy of the vinyl and I had one reel. So I think I had... The reel for side A of the album, and, and I had to somehow match the vinyl 
with that to get a complete CD for the final release. Um, and I bought myself a copy of it on eBay last year sometime, took a listen to it. It doesn't sound half bad. Um, I had to use some fairly extreme dynamic noise filtering, analog dynamic noise filtering on the, the vinyl bit to, to get the rumble and surface noise down, um, which I wouldn't normally have done. But um, yeah, so, you know, there are kind of whole lengths that people go to to reissue stuff that as a listener, we're never even aware of. So, you know, actually deciding what the source is going to be is not always completely simple. And then deciding what you should do with it is not completely simple. I mean, even to take that example of a sequenced production master with instructions for the cutting engineer, you know, lift this track by 2 dBs, add 3 dBs of bass or whatever, you might say, well, we can just reproduce that and that's going to be the ideal sound. Even leaving aside the variable of vinyl cutting, that's not necessarily, because, I mean, especially if it came from the 60s, mixing desks back then had fixed band EQs. You know, you had something that kind of stepped gain stages at fixed frequencies with a fixed uh, cue on the, the bell curve or the, the shelf or whatever. Really pretty crude in comparison to what we have now. In fact, I'm pretty sure that there was a Bowie album that... Uh, the engineer was who mastered it was talking about and just saying that they couldn't get the sound of the when it was reissued they couldn't get the sound of the original release until they figured out what desk it had originally been mastered with and what the eq increments were on that and reproduced them for the for the modern release and it didn't sound ideal but that was the sound of the record so they went with it um that's one decision. The other decision is to go, well, if it doesn't sound quite right, let's tune those EQ decisions to sound even better. And that kind of gets into the next topic, which is what you can actually do at mastering. So the, the project you worked on, John, how was there anything where you did anything particularly radical in terms of the overall sound? Or was it just basically balancing the levels and maybe a, bit, a little bit more bass, a little bit more treble on this, that or the other? I don't remember a lot of it. It was a couple of years back. I think some of the tracks were mono. Mm -hmm. There may have been tracks with phase issues. I, I honestly don't remember much about doing the project. Yeah. So sorry, I can't be with that. <laughs> but I, I would think nothing too crazy. I probably did like parallel compression just to kind of bring up the overall level of everything. And I don't know. I don't know if I did any automation on it. I mean, it's like anything else. It depends what it needs you know there's i've kind of i've done masters from cassette demos um you know that, that people did back in the day and you it's it's kind of like brain surgery trying to get something that's listenable out of it um and then there are other things where you know it's just tiny little tweaks so yeah there, there are no rules but okay so let's talk about what could be involved in actually doing a remaster you've got You've got to find the best possible source and use the best possible source. And I think the ideal situation for that, that kind of gets around some of the issues I was just talking about. Um, one example of that is when I did a box set of uh, singles from Andrew Luke Oldham's immediate record label, which is kind of 60s, 70s label. Fleetwood Mac started out on there. P.P. Arnold was on there. Um, the Nice, who uh, were on there, I think an early iteration of the small faces maybe if i remember rightly there's quite a few uh, <laughs> rod stewart there's quite a few big names hidden away in there um and for that 
we had the complete luxury of an entire boxed set of the original vinyl singles, as well as as many tapes and as many different CD copies as they could pull out of the archives. So we were able for each song to compare the original tape with any subsequent CD reissues with the actual original release and figure out which one was going to be the best to use. And there were no rules. Sometimes it was the tape. Sometimes it was one of the CDs. Sometimes it was the vinyl. There was just a sound to to the vinyl that we couldn't match in terms of the the processing that we were trying out. Um, I think that was probably just to do with what had been done at the cutting stage. But that was perfect because we knew how it had sounded originally and we could listen to it and go, well, that sounds great. We're going to try and match that. Or actually, it sounds good, but it could be better in certain ways and we'll try and improve on that. Um, you know, that was, a, that was a great benchmark to have. And that's kind of the ideal situation. But often you're kind of guessing. So, Or you're on a big deadline. Right? Or you're on a big deadline, absolutely. Well, and or you, you're just on a client who doesn't care. Um, there yeah. was one record label that will remain nameless who sent us the CDs and we were over and over we said look you can't release this stuff saying 24-bit remaster from the original tapes when you gave it to us on a cd but they did there's no honor amongst music executives and thieves <laughs> um, but um so okay so you've got your source you've got to transfer it um if it's coming from a tape it probably needs baking uh you know this process of gently warming up the tape to dry out the the glue which may have absorbed uh, moisture over the years and can become sticky. Um, if you don't do that, there is a risk that it will glue itself to the tape heads and damage the machine and the master in the process, as well as not sounding great. On the other hand, when you bake it, there's a risk that all of the edits will dry out and come to pieces and that the reel will fly across the room and you'll end up with... There was one occasion where it took me three and a half hours to untangle a reel of analog tape. It was so badly uh, tangled after a after an edit broke. Um, <laughs> and and once you bake it, I, I think you only get one transfer after that, and then it's done, right? I think you want to play it as little as possible. Um, no, you, you, you get a few days, maybe a week, where it's going to stay in a good enough shape to play. The trouble is, every time you play a tape like that, you're losing oxide. So you're losing top end. So you definitely want to minimize the number of times it gets played. But no, you can bake a tape, put it back in storage, and then bake it again five or ten years later. Um, okay. You know, we don't know how long hard drives are going to last and how long recordable CDs are going to last and uh, how long the internet will exist, I guess. But, um, you know, I mean, analog tape has survived a long time already. It's, it's actually a pretty secure archival format, I, I would say. But unless you have an electromagnet or, you know, things like that. Oh, yeah. Or unless you leave it out in a garage where it grows mold, <laughs> which yeah. has happened. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, you never quite know. But I mean, one of the advantages is that usually all that happens is that the quality deteriorates. You still uh -huh. have some kind of signal coming off. All right. You know, I mean, I've had DAT tapes from 10 or 15 years ago. You just get nothing. You just get occasional bursts of digital static, you know, because digital, if it works, should sound perfect. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you're you're doomed. So, yeah, flash drives that won't mount you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Hard drives that won't spin up. So it says it's um, full, but it's empty. Yeah. Things like that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm I'm slightly scared, to be honest, for the in terms of the future of 
you know, the kind of the archiving prospects for what's available now. And anybody out there who thinks, oh, I'll transfer all my old analog, um, you know, my cassette demos or whatever into my computer and then bin the tapes to help keep my wife or girlfriend happy um, or husband, <laughs> um, you know, don't do that. Keep the original analog tapes because um, you never know uh, when you might need them. Um, so you want to bake the tapes. You want a good machine to transfer them on. If it's a tape machine, it needs to be aligned right. It needs to be cleaned. It needs to be in good working order. If you have a piece of vinyl, you should probably consider cleaning the vinyl. You know, you can you can either wash vinyl by hand or you can get machines to do it as an automated process. You can send the vinyl away to get it cleaned. You will get a better transfer there. If you're transferring a piece of vinyl, you want a great turntable with a great um, stylus, a great preamp, um, you know, everything to be as high quality as possible in the, the process. And one advantage that we haven't talked about yet of a modern transfer, of a remastering transfer, is that hopefully the converters that we're using these days will be better than converters that might have been available when it was originally mastered. You know, it's possible that one reason people took a dislike to digital audio so early on was because those early converters, you know, probably only 16-bit converters, initially even lower bit rates of the converters, um, not necessarily optimally designed, maybe not implementing dither correctly, maybe not having enough headroom or, you know, not perfect signal-to-noise ratios, all those kind of things that in theory mean with a modern converter you should get a better result even if you transfer it from the same tape um, on the same machine. Um, I don't know whether anybody's done any tests of that kind of stuff. Um, I know people like Ethan Weiner get annoyed and say it's not true and those early converters were absolutely fine. Um, but I've heard some dodgy conversions. And if you look at, you know, if you wanted to kind of to have an example of, of the kind of state of the art in terms of remasters, I always think you should look at the, the Beatles remasters from uh, several years ago now. But when you compare the sound of those modern releases with the original CD releases, they're the same recordings, you know, they haven't transformed the sound in any way, they just sound better in almost every respect. Um, and one of those respects is just you can kind of hear further into the recordings, you can hear more detail, more space, more ambience, more of the reverb, all that kind of stuff. And I put that down to better quality transfers, um, as well as the, the post-production that was done on them. So you've got your source, you've transferred it as best you can, then we get to restoration. So restoration just means cleaning up the source as best you can. Uh, if it's coming from vinyl, you almost certainly want to de-click it, although not necessarily. I'll come back to that point in a minute. If it's an older source, it could well be noisy, could have hiss, could have rumble if it's come off vinyl. Uh, you possibly want to denoise it. You can decrackle stuff to get rid of that kind of fizzy, high-frequency distortion. And then there's kind of more advanced signal processing, uh, like spectral repair that you get in isotope rx or we used to use uh, there's a there's a company that specializes in audio restoration kind of invented the industry called cedar They're actually based in the uk here they had a product called retouch which is basically the same idea as the spectral repair and isotope but they came up with it first and they're kind of at the leading edge mildly interesting tangent um, when i went to an open day at cambridge university where i didn't go because i didn't get good enough results but i went to the open day there too and looked around the I guess it was the science department there was an early prototype of a cedar declicker where they were you know they had this piece of vinyl they were playing it in on one side and you could flick the switch and hear it with clicks and without clicks and it was like wow that's really cool and then 
four or five years later when I started working in the studio, they had, I think it was model number two of the first hardware release real-time vinyl declicker um, that we used for from then onwards, right until I the, the company folded. Um, and the Cedar do forensic restoration and all the rest of it. So, you know, RX enables you to do things like take out thumps and pops and just random noises that overlap with the other audio. Uh, you can just kind of go in there with a mouse and draw around it and interpolate it out. It's kind of like the... Oh, there's a filter in Photoshop that you use to take out power lines in landscapes and stuff. Clone tool. It's kind yeah. of like the clone tool in Photoshop, but for audio. It's amazing. That's really helpful for, like, bad edits or where it wasn't edited at a zero crossing or it was edited on tape and it wasn't quite in the right spot. RX is great for doing things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite amazing what you can achieve. I think what I want to say is with all of this restoration stuff, you want to do as little as possible to get an acceptable result. And I think my the, the most important one is, is denoising, removing hiss. It's so easy to get obsessed by hiss and go over the top and you're left with these kind of unnatural artifacts and light sound that kind of has the life sucked out of it which is probably worse than the hiss originally you know um if you go back and listen to so many of our favorite recordings from the past there's actually a load of hiss in them um and the great thing about hiss is it's it's actually kind of constant. It just, you know, it, it doesn't change much typically in a recording. Um, it just kind of sits there. And our ears are very good at tuning out constant sounds, you know, like you don't hear the, the drone of a road in the distance um, after a while or the hum of a refrigerator. Hiss, unless it's really high level, uh, is a lot less of a problem, I would say, than, than most people think. So I think people can get obsessed by it and kind of go over the top and just... You can get this, it's kind of an extreme filtering artifact and it's kind of makes, it can make things sound like they're underwater um, or yeah, like all of the air has been sucked out of them or you can get kind of swirly, almost MP3 type artifacts on, you know, transients and especially on speech, it can be really noticeable. So I, you know, dehiss in particular is something that I think should be, it's a, one of those with great power comes great responsibility things and it should be really used minimally i would say do you remember whether you had much success with the project that you did where you had to to use that or you're doing a um a documentary soundtrack right right at the moment where you're cleaning up kind of some rough vocal takes and things i mean so you're using the the denoise in rx to do that i assume yeah i'm doing a bit of that um i'm doing a bit of dynamic eq and just regular eq some of the stuff just it's just it's like noisy mic preamps so it's just this like harsh hiss up at the top end so i'll just do like a 60b slope uh at like 15k so it's kind of kind of gentle or or i might use a, a high shelf and just do about maybe 60b down just where it's like you're noticeably better but it's not not really affecting actual source signal it's amazing how effective that can be that's how i was taught to do it when I first started as a master engineer, there there was no computerized dehiss stuff. So that that dynamic noise filter that I mentioned that I used on the on the deep fix record, literally it would just it had a high cut filter, I guess, 
that rolled mm-hmm. up and down the frequency depending on the signal level. So when the signal was loud, the filter was open and everything came through. And when it got quiet, it reduced. And then you could just control the amount of total gain reduction. Um, we also used to do that by hand. You know, one of the places where you really notice hiss often in a song is right at the beginning or right at the end. If you have a long held note at the end, you know, all the instruments tail out and you shh, left with this hiss in the background. So back in the early days, we would just gently roll in, like you say, either a high shelf or a parametric at the right frequency, you know, by instinct as the sound faded away, just to take your ear away from those high frequencies. Um, in yeah. fact, I, <laughs> I'm that still was doing my first that. ever. Yeah, it's still, it's still an effective way to work. Um, I do something similar these days where I will process something with, say, RX, actually harder than I would normally do in order to get rid of the hiss. And then I do an edit between the clean and the de-hissed version so that I can kind of customize the rate at which the noise reduction takes effect, which is the same idea. Um, that style of de-hissing was my, probably my very first experience of remastering. I can't remember where I've told this story on the podcast before. I think you When have. I was at college. Uh, okay, so <laughs> shall I not say it? Go ahead. Shall I not say it or shall, we, shall I do it again? I, th- I think I've heard the story <laughs> at least twice. <laughs> You've been listening to me for too long. You can stick this bit on the end. So I was a huge Prince fan when I was at college um, and I would get bootlegs of his legendary after show parties on cassette in the most appalling quality. Um, and I'd have two cassette decks, to, uh, two boom boxes, ghetto blasters, as we called them. Um, and my friend had one that had a five band graphic EQ, which enabled me to just roll out the high frequency. So I'd play one tape off onto a new tape on the other machine, uh, you know, mini jack into the headphone output, going through to the input of this other machine. Um, and yeah, just roll the hiss out by hand during the quiet sections so that you didn't notice it so much. Um, it's an amazingly effective method. Yeah. And and actually, in some cases, I would say is preferable to the digital equivalents. Um, there's a, another example I remember where we had to remaster. There was a, an album by the Trogs. I don't know if you've heard of the Trogs. Classic yeah. band. And yeah, it was it was it was a proper production master. It was just really hissy, and in that case, what I actually did was I used that dynamic noise filter, the analog thing that I was talking about earlier. I used that on a really harsh setting to completely remove all the hiss, but also kind of everything started to sound quite stilted and muffled. But then I ran that, I ran, I paralleled that up in the desk with the unprocessed version with all of the hiss there and just blended a little bit of the version with the hiss back in so there was enough hiss and enough high frequency so that you felt that that top end was still there and actually i would say that's one of the most transparent results i've ever achieved it's not necessarily going to work on every master um, but in that case it worked really well if you're going to leave the hiss it it can become a problem when you get to uh, adjusting the loudness of all these different tracks uh, different from different releases, putting them end to end. If that hiss mm. is a different quality, tonally, um, or a different level, then it's a problem. So then, then you really need to be careful about how much and in which way you're removing the hiss. That's a good point, and that's actually one reason why I tend to do my de-hissing last in the process. If I have a project where there's lots of hiss on some songs, I will probably master them, ignoring that so that I have the final versions, and then I go through and de-hiss everything. Because another possibility is, let's say you've got um, you know, one song that's not very hissy, followed by a much quieter number where you lift the gain right up. So even though that wasn't very hissy either to begin with, in comparison, the hiss sounds much louder when you've got it in its final 
balanced mastered level um yeah. you know that's an example of where you might want to use more noise reduction or filtering or whatever you're going to do on the quieter song to get so that they feel comparable at, yeah. at the end you kind of taught me to uh, get my loudness set first or you know kind of like bring them up to the ideal level and then work on fixing the remaining mistakes so i think in that way i kind of do ignore the hiss uh, often i do the the uh, heads and tails of the files as almost the very last step yeah i'm exactly the same partly because a lot of that depends on the gaps you know sometimes like if you've got a song with a long fade or with a long tail out that could change what you decide is going to be the ideal gap to come after it um and if it does that might change what kind of processing you do in to in order to clean it up you know um so yeah it, it kind of follows on naturally if you follow the advice we gave way back in like show number two or three um where yeah the for me the mastering process is all about choose your loudness and then everything else will follow that kind of informs everything that comes afterwards mm -hmm. um i thought of a ninja trick for anybody who wants to use denoising in rx or a similar package because there's a few software packages out there now that have these kind of capabilities um one nice thing about rx is that's not immediately obvious maybe it's covered in the manual i should probably read the manual <laughs> um but is that you can you don't just have to so, so the, the the kind of simple-minded way of, of using one of these tools is you find a bit of music that just has or a bit of tape that has silence has hiss you choose your hiss sample you the the software analyzes it and then you use that to be extracted from the rest of the file to a greater or lesser degree but quite often you will get especially if you're mastering from a, a previously released cd or it's come from a client who has not followed my requests and has already done the the start and end the, the fading and all the rest of it for the song you may not have a clean sample of hiss all the areas where you can hear the hiss might have music in them with rx on the one hand you can fill in you can take a sample from a just an incomplete part of the frequency spectrum so say if you've got a long note tailing out at the end usually the high frequency content has more or less gone by the end of the note so you can choose to just sample the higher frequencies and then rx will interpolate in the lower frequencies usually pretty successfully the other thing is you can choose samples from different sections of the song so you could take one from the end and then there might be another gap where maybe there's just a vocal and you can sample the low frequency noise that's below where that vocal is in terms of the frequency. Yeah, you just hold, I think, command and draw with a, the rectangle tool. Yeah, I think, I don't know whether it's command or shift, but yeah it's, yeah, it's it's kind of like selecting multiple files when you're copying files around or whatever. Yeah, you can just choose multiple bits of the, the frequency spectrum and then it will all combine itself together into um, an overall noise sample that you can then use. Um, yeah. And I think you can then then you can go in and edit areas of that noise sample as well. So another trick is to listen to the noise that you're hearing. If it's mostly high frequency noise, then you might as well draw in a curve so that actually the low frequencies aren't denoised at all. Yeah. Um, the algorithms are pretty good these days, so usually you don't get too much taken out that isn't noise anyway. But especially if there's something that's particularly noisy in the high frequencies that can be worth doing so yeah there's all kinds of i mean that's something that we found with the early with the early cedar tools uh was that i mean they were amazing for the time in what they could do anyway 
but there was all kinds of stuff. So here's an example where I was going to talk about declicking, something we would do with the original hardware declick unit that I was mentioning was we'd kind of apply pre and post emphasis. So we'd put in a really big high shell filter to lift up all of that high frequency grit and mulch going in, then use a more extreme declick setting on that, and then reduce all those high frequencies again. It's kind of the same idea as biasing a tape so that you got a nice clean, you got an even cleaner result than you would have if you just put the signal through, but you, I got that backwards. You could use less extreme declick settings because you'd boosted the, the level up. Um, mm. Because one of the problems with declick algorithms is that when you use the really extreme settings, it can cut into all kinds of other things that are not the clicks you want to get rid of, like transients of guitar notes or drum hits. Um, you know, any kind of clicky percussive thing could be mistakenly identified by the software as being a click. And anything you can do to avoid that, you should. Um, so the best possible way to do declicking is by hand, kind of sitting there and listening. And when you hear a click, select it, just declick that one thing. But in my experience, there's a whole mass of projects where that's just not viable. There, you know, there are so many clicks that need to be taken out. You need to use some kind of automated setting. So uh, the CD unit was really good in that respect. You basically kind of had a threshold a detection threshold that you could wind in and out and you could just choose what you were going to do. Um, modern tools have all kinds of parameters. RX tends to be pretty good, although I don't think I've used it on a on a vinyl remaster. I don't think I've... I don't know whether you have. I, I haven't used it on vinyl, but I've used it on all kinds of other sources. And to use it gently, like, you might... Let's say you use a setting of 0 0.5 for the declicker. Um for the entire file, full frequency. And then you might make a frequency selection from, I don't know, let's say 5K and up, and then run it again uh, with the same 0 0.5 setting or maybe a one, a setting of one. And then you would get additional declicking in the higher frequencies. Things like that can be more effective. Yeah, and that's the same idea of, of kind of using your in, your intuition and, and your creativity to, to use these tools to be more effective, maybe even than the original people who made them thought they would be. I think the advanced version of RX gives you, has a frequency bias uh, control that you can use to, to kind of make it prioritize high or low frequency clicks as well, which can be helpful. It can do high and low volume uh, clicks. So there is yeah. there are yeah, a few settings that I, I tend to forget about and just refine my selection process instead of tweaking the, the plugin over and over. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and it's really important to listen to what's being removed in those tools. There's a, a, a solo option. Yeah, or you can just say listen to noise only or listen to clicks only. Um, and yeah, that, that's uh, really valuable. We, that's not an option with the original C to D clicker that, that I ever had. Um, I, I really appreciate that. There are some things that... Um, you shouldn't declick, or you should be very careful about declicking. Um, and the most common example I can think of is brass. I haven't tried isotope on some kind of really clicky brass material, but certainly the cedar stuff, because when you look at the waveform of a brass instrument, there's all kinds of stuff in it that looks really quite like the transient of a click. Um, and you get, you used to get this really odd effect where it would take out the vinyl clicks but then you'd kind of get sub frequencies coming in underneath the note this kind of extra mulch left over as a, a byproduct of the declicking process that 
almost sounded as unnatural um, as the clicks in the first place. So I would quite often, you know, if I had something that had lots and lots of brass in it, uh, then I would be doing much more de-clicking by hand um, just to avoid that kind of thing. So again, just as with de-hissing, you've got to be careful not to overdo the way that you use this. Have you found anything where you've kind of, it's completely messed up the original sound? Um, it's usually just from having the uh, the settings too hard or doing too much of like the mid frequencies or something. So it, mm -hmm. it really depends on the source, but I can't think of any one particular type of source uh, where it's a problem every time. Right. Well, I, maybe I should try some... Maybe Isotope is clever enough to, to know that it's listening to brass and to not do that, but um, I haven't done that test. Uh, the final kind of tool that you, we could talk about is, is decrackling. It's That's kind of similar to declicking, but obviously it's really fine, kind of tiny, high-frequency stuff. And again, really, it's just a case of using that option to listen to what you're removing to make sure you're not taking out stuff that actually is musical information because... Uh, let's choose, well, say say uh, violin. If you have close-miked strings, there's a grit and a grain to the texture of those notes often that is part of the sound. And if you're trying to decrackle something, it could well be that the, the decrackle algorithm thinks that some elements of that sound are the thing you're trying to release and actually you end up taking away something that you wanted from the original sound. So, you know, the, the common theme through all of these is... Don't get obsessed by the fault. Make sure you pay attention to what else, what other effects, what side effects there are of, yes, you've got less hiss, you have fewer clicks, you've removed the crackle, but does the music still sound good? And, you know, I would say, if not, leave it back in. I mean, to take an extreme example, there was a bit of a debate at the company where I used to work. In the early days, we did have some really old recordings that came from uh, you know, gramophone records. And the process that we would take to there was a company who would do transfers for us with and and they would even go to the lengths of sending us multiple transfers of these gramophones played with different styluses and on different machines and we could choose the one that we liked the best but we would then use de-clicking and de-hissing and all of these processes to try and get the most pristine version of that original signal that we could and usually that involved filtering out a load of high frequencies but of course those high frequencies would never have been reproduced by a gramophone player back in the day um, so that's a perfectly natural thing to do that's one way to approach remastering that kind of material there was another record company who had a completely different philosophy when they were reissuing gramophone uh, recordings they would also choose a player that they felt made the material sound great but then they would put a gramophone player in a really nice acoustic and set up a stereo pair and record the sound of that gramophone player playing in the room, which makes perfect sense if you think about it. I mean, that's the closest to the original listening experience of the listener of those recordings, um, is the sound of an actual gramophone player playing it in a really nice room. And they left all of the crackle and clicks and everything else in, and people bought that stuff and were completely happy with it. Um, which one of those would you, is your instinct, John? Which one do you think you'd prefer? Hmm. Oh, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough thing, actually. I think I'm more interested in the second version. Yeah, it's funny because I, I was working on stuff doing the first version, you know, where you're kind of trying to get back to the original waveform, trying to get back kind of beyond almost the recording format that the that it was re reissued on. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, 
I do. Well, this brings us on to an interesting debate in general, which is kind of the, the final area of the topic that I wanted to uh, look at, which is, should we remaster stuff? And if we should remaster stuff, how should we remaster it? Um, and this has become a bit of a controversy um, in some corners of the internet, at least, um, of late, for a couple of reasons. So the first one is that, as we talked about earlier on in the, in the show, that for me, remastering is about getting the best possible source for the original material and then releasing it to sound as good as it possibly can, ideally better than it did originally. That means changing it slightly, and you have to be very sensitive in that case to how the original sound and how much or how far you should change the sound. And there was a classic example that I might have mentioned before where some uh, Elvis recordings, I think, were reissued, and the record company got quite a few complaints because the mastering engineers had decided to add lots of extra bass back in that hadn't been reproduced on the original releases but was there on the master tapes. And people complained because the, the recordings didn't sound the way that they expected anymore. They'd been used to listening to these recordings with, for modern tastes, very little bass. And they were upset that they felt that the mastering engineers had kind of gone beyond their remit. I'm sure there are cases where people are taking the opportunity to overdub or put in alternate mixes or splicing different mm -hmm. mixes together in the remaster. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been mistakes. Um, that immediate box set that I mentioned, um, one of the interesting things we discovered is that the version of First Cut is the Deepest by P.P. Arnold that we had heard on multiple CD releases was the wrong take. <laughs> completely when we listened to the original piece of vinyl it was a completely different take of the song and it actually it was a beautiful take it had a completely different atmosphere it was much more dreamy and gentle sounding than the version we'd been used to hearing so at some point somebody had chosen the wrong master tape presumably for an initial cd reissue um and from there on out that wrong version had been used so we were able to restore in that case we took it straight from the vinyl and put the the actual original released version out so yeah i mean it's you know there's there's all the kind of those aspects and then we get to this thorny issue of the loudness war because another way to approach remastering is to say well i'm going to take this original thing and i'm going to make it sound as much like it would sound if it were released new today as possible so that can mean really hyped bass really hyped high end and extreme loudness um, and unfortunately there have been a ton of releases where I mean, you know, I balance the loudness when I'm remastering and I tend to lift it up because why not? If you do it tastefully and, and carefully, it doesn't have any negative impacts on the material uh, and it's going to translate well across a wide range of listening systems, all the benefits that we're used to in mastering. Um, but there have been a lot of releases that have gone way beyond that and the stuff has been much more overcompressed and, and limited, in some cases distorted, you know, and, and adding pumping and all kinds of stuff that wasn't there in the original releases. And people are understandably up in arms about this. I mean, I am, to be honest. I've got the remastered release of So by Peter Gabriel, and that's not one of those excessive examples, but it's definitely a couple of dBs louder than I think it needs to be, and I don't feel there's any particular benefit to it being that loud. It's, it's better than the original release in all kinds of other ways, better sounding, um, but it's just a little bit too loud. And I kind of think, well, why did they have to go that far? The same with, there was a reissue of Nevermind, <laughs> back to Nirvana. And, and that always used to be 
it's really dynamic by modern standards, but nobody ever complained that it was too quiet, except now they've released a new version that is louder. So presumably somebody at the record company did. Um, <laughs> and this has kind of spawned an anti-remastering culture out there in the the wilderness of the internet forums. Um, you know, people just saying, you shouldn't touch this at all. The, the, you know, it, it should be as close as possible to the original master tapes. There was one guy who even said he adamantly insisted that he preferred those original Beatles reissues, um, even though they're obviously, they just don't sound as good as the, as the new ones. And I don't really have much patience with that kind of uh, extremism, I'm going to call it. You know, yes, there are bad remasters out there, and that's a shame, but that doesn't mean that the entire concept is, you know, without uh, benefit or, or virtue. Um, if you get a remaster right, you can absolutely have a listening experience that is more satisfying than it would otherwise have been. Um, and that's the goal, is to, you know, try and get a product uh, an experience that's better if you can get the music to if you can get the hairs to stand up on the back of somebody's neck more when they're listening to the remaster than the original then i think you've achieved your goal and that's that's what remastering should be all about do you agree with that or do you think maybe we should be true because I, I can see the other argument which is that you know we should be true to the original release if it sounded like that originally we should reproduce that as faithfully as possible the whole idea is a bit shady if the original artist isn't alive anymore. So we don't know what the original intent is at that point. So it should be somewhere in the middle. Don't you? I mean, if, you, if, you've, got, if you've got a copy of the original vinyl, don't you know? I mean, presumably that is as close as they could get to the artist's intent. Well, it depends on if they were on a major label. They might not have had a lot of say in how it was, uh, you know, they could have been under a lot of pressure from the label to do it a certain way. Um, yeah, they might not have been involved. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it could be. And and actually, the opposite applies. So playing devil's advocate, even when the artist is around. So Iggy Pop remixed and remastered Raw Power. It's a while ago now, but it's it's kind of infamous as being one of the loudest CDs ever. It has something like a, a peak to loudness ratio of two, <laughs> I think. Um and it sounds, actually, it sounds okay, considering that, you know, it sounds the way that he intended it. Um, but it didn't have to be that crushed and that squashed. It could still have sounded big and aggressive and all of those things that he wanted out of it without going to those extremes. So there are times when, you know, in that case, I feel like maybe the artist didn't serve the best interest of his own material. Um, sure. There are there are people who kind of do a um, a George Lucas on their music, you know, they reissue it and they go back and they they re-record things. I mean, Mike Oldfield re-recorded the whole of Tubular Bells, I think, um, and reissued it with the imaginative title of Tubular Bells 2. Um, and it wasn't the same, you know? I mean, the original release... I listened to Tubular Bells the other day and I was amazed by how out of tune some of the parts are, but it all kind of adds into the experience and the the charm of the original release to, to redo it. Well, and there's the... Brian Wilson's modern version of Smile. Um, there are some nutcases out there who have reconstructed from the bootlegs that were available of the Smile sessions, uh, you know, the original Beach Boys legendary unreleased album. They've rebuilt all of those outtakes and all the rest of it into a version that's almost exactly the same as the one that he chose to re 
release in 2004, but with the actual Beach Boys singing and playing on it um, and the original session musicians and, and all the rest of it. And that version just blows his modern release out of the water, um, even though the sound quality and all the rest of it on the modern one is streets ahead. Uh, you know, there's a case where the authentic original is just what you want or what I want personally. Right. Um, have you have you heard that? I, I didn't know about that, but there's definitely the the temptation to do the special edition treatment to it, the Star yeah. Wars special edition treatment, and it just keeps getting worse and worse with every update. There are people who are reverse engineering the Blu-ray release of the Star Wars special editions back to as close as possible to the original VHS releases. I don't know if you've come across that. I, I think I have heard of an unspecial edition version of it. The, despecialized, I think it's called. Despecialized, or yeah, yeah. I, I have uh, seen yeah, some I've, alternate I've, versions of it of uh, of Star Wars. Yeah, it's uh, and you know, I mean, at that point, maybe we should all just relax and kind of, you know, in this day and age, anybody can remix or remaster any album they choose on their laptop with software that probably costs less than a hundred dollars. You know, so maybe we should all kind of, yeah. Even the uh, Metallica albums have been remastered by fans. You say even, yeah. I mean, there's a whole counterculture of... I mean, there are multiple versions of Death Magnetic out there. And, and you know, there's that's an interesting example because, you know, if you take the, the much cleaner version of Death Magnetic that was on the Guitar Hero game, it's not a completely satisfying listening experience, you know? Yes, it's got better right. dynamics. Yes, it's got less distortion. But also, it lacks a certain amount of energy and just, you know, you can see what made them go from that to the final release version. For me, they went about five steps too far. Yeah. They should just have settled for something that was, you know, but but I definitely understand where that, you know, where the, the creative intent was there. Um, and actually, this kind of keys into something that I would like to do as another episode of the show, which is just the whole issue of what is great sound is great sound high fidelity perfect recording you know amazing performances and all the rest of it or is it authenticity being in the moment being there but we will come back to that another day and why do all audiophiles like steely dan you know all those things <laughs> it'll be a cracking episode i think we should find a really opinionated guest for that one so that we can have a really big argument about it you know what he would probably do the show that's that's not a bad idea <laughs> yeah i bet he'd like steely dan <laughs> <laughs> all right is that everything i think that's everything that's everything i have on my list i feel like we've we've uh covered the topic well i was going to finish with a mastering maxim cool. just very quickly i don't know whether we've done one of these for a few weeks we haven't um you know if you're remastering i think the maxim is to recognize what was good about the source. It's so easy to listen to an old recording or, you know, uh, a demo recording that we did that, that, that where the performance was great and the sound quality is terrible and kind of obsess about the hiss or the hum or the clicks or the fact that the tape azimuth is slightly off or whatever it is and, and you know, do everything in our power to get rid of those inverted commas, faults. Um, and somewhere along the line, just take away what was great about the recording in the first place. Um, so, 
you know, by all means, have fun remastering old recordings. Or I have a a recording that I made on cassette eight track when I was at college. I have the files on the computer waiting to be remastered at some point. Um, I'm going to enjoy it when I eventually do it, probably when I'm old and grey, greyer. But um, yeah, just just keep sight of what was great about the original and try and keep that and not take away from that in in the, the quest to remove what we think of as faults. Enhance what's good, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and don't, and don't worry too much about what's bad. Yeah. Um, I think it was Brian Eno who said something along the lines of, at the point where you release the product, everybody thinks the mistakes and the distortions are intentional. You know, it's part of the listening experience. If I guess it's, it's almost what was unusual about Death Magnetic was that it was so extreme that actually people said, is this really what they meant to do? But for the most part, people go, yeah, that's that's the way that it's meant to be. Um, and they accept it. So, you know, it's not worth binning that take because of the fret buzz in bar three if everything else about it was great. So great i really enjoyed this um i hope people listening found something interesting and useful about it we covered both topics in a sane amount of time which is great um so john thank you very much for helping me out again and for mixing the show you're welcome and if you would like to see some links and extra information on some of the things that we've talked about as part of this episode, please head over to themasteringshow.com where you can find full show notes for every episode. You can sign up for the email list to make sure you don't ever miss an episode and you, uh, well, that's basically it. Don't miss any future episodes. Find us on social media. Head over to reaperblog.net to see what John is up to. I'm always at productionadvice.co.uk. Please subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Head over there and give us a rating and a review if you enjoy the show. Thanks once again to Kaylee Law for our music. And thanks for listening. There's one CD which is behind me somewhere. This is all staying in the edit. (laughs) Oh, crap, I can't find it.